Time to Travel with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of Time to Travel. On the show this evening, I'll be joined in studio by Anne Riley, Project Manager of Celebrating 50 Years of Conservation at the Big Game Parks in Swaziland. I'll be chatting with Craig Lowe, founder of Exec Mobile, about their pocket Wi-Fi device that I believe will help prevent what they call bull shock and reduces roaming data costs by up to 98%. And good news for all of you who travel overseas. This is available here in South Africa, so listen up to that because, gosh, when next time you go overseas, you might be saving yourself a lot of money. Hagen Fulyun, winemaker at Salms Delta, recently visited Italy and France to take a look at their wine-producing areas and I'm sure tasted quite a lot of wine along the way. Seriously, I wouldn't mind a job like that. And then on Friday last week, I was fortunate enough to catch up with the Deputy Mayor, Alderman Gary Middleton of Derry City Council in Ireland, as well as Sean McCarter, skipper of the yacht Derry London Derry Dura, which is taking part in the Clipper 2013-14 Round the World Yacht Race. And just a reminder, if you need any information about something you hear on the show this evening, you can find it on Facebook. Just go to Travel on SAFM. If you'd still like to contact me directly, you can email me on travel at safm.co.za. Well, that's the lineup for the show this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the hour here on SAFM. Time to travel with Karen Key. Well, big game parks in Swaziland will be celebrating 50 years in July next year. And over the past 50 years, they've reintroduced most of the indigenous wildlife which were lost during colonial times. Anne Riley, project manager of celebrating 50 years of conservation at the big game parks in Swaziland, is joining me in studio this evening. Anne, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. This is a rather interesting and exciting story. I think you need to start at the beginning, where it all began. I wasn't there. You weren't there? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was in the late 1950s where Ted Riley realized, you know, he, he was a Swazi, came to South Africa for school, and then went and worked in Zambia, um, Operation Noah, uh, helping with uh, saving the animals out on... Kariba Dam. He went through all those things and every time he came back to Swaziland he realised there were fewer and fewer animals. The animals that he grew up with just weren't there anymore. So he actually approached the the British government because Swaziland was a protectorate. It was before independence. And the Brits told him you don't need game parks in Swaziland. You've got Kruger to the north and and Llhui to the south. So no. So Ted Riley decided that actually wasn't an answer and the Swazi people needed conservation and he went to the Swazi king who hadn't been renounced it was King Sabuza at the time King Sabuza II and the king embraced it and said yes this is our national heritage and please do something so Ted had a family farm in Lilloin and that was the only space available so he was collecting the odd impala the odd zebra, the odd wildebeest, crazy stories, um, on the back of a Land Rover, one by one, and bringing them from the king's farm where the remnant herds were and delivering them to Mlilwan in the safety of a private farm. I was reading some information you sent me about what happened to the animals, and, I mean, you just, how they were all being shot, okay, some of them were soldier rations when they were there, but wildebeest were being poisoned at waterholes to kill off bovine diseases, threatening cattle, I mean, wagon loads were being sold for a season's hunting permit, I mean, literally decimating the animal population of Swaziland. I think you have to realise at the time, people just thought it was endless, Mm. that it was always going to be there. Sort of a never-ending supply, effectively. Yeah, and since then, land has been cut up and cities have been built and the number of people has grown enormously. And we forget how important nature is and that we are part of nature. So, yeah, it was very easy to plunder back then. Right, so we're down to a zebra, a springbok, and an impala, and on the farm, and then what? I mean, it's a lot more now, but that's where it started. Well, then I think what happened after that was a race against the poachers. And remembering Swaziland, it's, it's a rural country, really. Um, everyone thought it was their right to hunt. So having had the colonial plundering, uh, huge amounts, the odd poacher in inverted commas, you know, the guy sus- sustaining himself and his family, you had to now change that mindset. And to be honest, to this day, that hasn't happened. And it got to a stage where it really was a race against time and it was 
fights out in the bush in the midnight and catching poachers and they're getting quite a fright and sort of saying, who are you to stop me doing this? This is what I've always done. And the king, King Sabuze again, called the nation together and said, just stop. Mlilwan and Matgoban, then is uh, Ted Riley's Saswati name, has my blessing and he is doing this for our nation. And our children need to see what we have seen. So he was an incredibly wise king. And from then on, it just seemed to stop or reduce. And the nation knew it had his blessing. I was interested, to, well, I mentioned it at the beginning, though, that they've managed to reintroduce most of the indigenous wildlife that was lost during those colonial times. Yeah, it was, you know, it's, it's an amazing story of a private initiative. And it still is private to this day. It still is private, and it was backed by the king. Um, and the king and the government are, are separate entities, and people don't recognize that. But it really got a lot of airtime with internationals. Dr. Rupert backed us in a big way. Um, Prince Bernard of the Netherlands, World Wildlife Fund. In fact, Mlilwan was the first project of South African Nature Foundation, which has now become WWF South Africa. And it, it's amazing. We got um, sponsorship of white rhino. You know, it got to a stage where South Africa was saving the white rhino. And they'd built up the numbers and they needed places to take them. So it was dispersal area, extra range for them. Swaziland came on, on board and we got rhino through them. Um, a lot of help from Natal Parks Board, Sand Parks. It was all early days then and a lot of experimental conservation at the time. And the the private reserve now, I mean, it's more than just a private reserve. It, it's doing so much more than just come and look at the animals. Yeah, there are actually three game reserves that are in the big game parks fold. So there's Llani Royal National Park, which is the King's Park still to this day. Um, Mlidwan Wildlife Sanctuary, which is the Pioneer Park. And then Mkai Game Reserve. And they all have a very different... Um, aim really. Mlilwan and Llani see over 13,000 school kids, uh, regional, I mean, local school kids, Swazi kids come through. And quite often you'll meet someone at Parliament who says, Yes, I saw an impala once when I was at school. You know? Oh gosh, so it's still. So it's still very mm. much there. And I met someone the other day talking about media plans for next year, and he was saying, Oh, I know those stories, you know. One of the things that is very important is conservation in Swaziland, it was recognized right in the beginning. If it wasn't there for the Swazi people, then it had a very short-lived life. So international and regional tourism is all very well, but the Swazis have to support it. So education was a huge thing. It started with environmental education, the NEEP program, um, in 1975, I think it was, and that was a lot of outreach, a lot of radio time, and really embracing the Swazi people and embracing the, the national significance of conservation, which is very deep in the Swazi culture and um, traditions. And you see that in Nyangas and Sangomas, you know, whether it's medicine or whether it's just stories and what they wear, the Swazi traditional gear, there's a lot of na natural stuff in that. And now it's 50 years since this all started and the big celebrations. It's called the Big Day coming up in July next year. Tell us what's yeah. happening for the Big Day. It's on Ooh. the 12th of July next year <laughs> is the Big Day. I wish I knew. <laughs> are you supposed no. to be organizing this now, yes. Anne? No, we, we are actually looking at big media coming up to that. So it's six months of media and collecting stories and embracing the people who visited the park, so a call to the South Africans who are listening, if you have been to the game parks in Swaziland and have stories, please send them through because we want to push that through the media and make it the people's um, celebration as well. Um, but the big day, we are planning to get some really iconic celebrities, but that's all in the beginning stages of getting that together. Um, and yeah, the the projects that we run through the year will culminate on the day. So if it's art competitions, we'll have a art um, presentation. We want to do a, um, a song competition. So Mvelo Yagitsi is our heritage, and we want to put that out to the Swazi people and see what comes up, and then they can, the top three songs can be sung. So as much participation 
to create a national celebration and and pride in conservation. So this day is really open. It's a it's going to be a family day, family focused day. So bring the family and. I mean, don't just go up for the day. Obviously, we can't from South Africa. It's a bit far just for the day. But it's a, it's a wonderful place to go and visit anyway and then make this the sort of key point or the focus of your trip up there and make sure you're up there for that particular day on the 12th of July. It's yeah. bang smack in the middle of our holidays, school holidays, usually, I think, that time of year. So it's a good time to take the family up to Swaziland on holiday. Well, you say it's far from South Africa. It depends where. South well, I'm Africa's thinking of huge. Cape Town. Things. I'm sitting down here in Cape Town, okay? Yeah. <laughs> And even from Cape Town, you know, it's a two-hour flight to Joburg and a four-hour drive to Swaziland. So mm. it's not, so not it's really for the day, though. Namibia. Not for well, the day. Well, yeah, okay. Well, we'd I'm, love I'm trying to, to encourage have you them to go out for a while. Longer. Yes, I'm trying yes. to encourage them to go out for the holidays. Yes. But it's very... One thing about Swaziland is it is accessible. I mean, it's a four-hour drive from, from O.R. Tambo or Lanseria. And two hours, not even, to get to the border is about half an hour from Nelspruit. So... You know, the, the country's tiny, mm. but it's got so much diversity that, yeah, you can keep busy for days, weeks, actually. Now, if we come up there, and can we stay close by? Is the accommodation close to the, to the parks, accommodation in the parks? Yes. And Lillon has um, the good old beehive huts, you know, the, mm. the sort of grass igloos, good old Swazi uh, traditional architecture. And we believe they were the first beehives ever to be used for tourism ahead of Sharka land in oh, fact really? okay. and they were built as a showpiece and people just asked to stay in them so we've got lots of beehives we've got we've actually got 150 beds on the park and it's hard to believe because most people are out Lillian's very much an outdoor lover's paradise so you can go horse riding mountain biking hiking you can go and sit by the river up the mountain it's amazing how you can just disperse and become one with nature and then come back We've, we've got hippo and crocodiles, but apart from that, nothing dangerous. As long as people are, have respect for nature, you'll be fine. So it really is get out there and enjoy it. So there's lots to do. Absolutely. And there are a lot of B&Bs. If you don't like ecotourism as such, if you want B&Bs or hotels, we've got Royal Swazi Sun, Happy Valley, um, Royal Villas, all four five-star hotels. So I think the nice part is to actually stay right on the reserve in the park. Uh, I, if you give it to me, I'll be under <laughs> a tree or under the stars. <laughs> Accommodation is um, overrated. So if people are wanting to find out more, the biggameparks.org website, all that information about the big day, the accommodation, all of that on there? Not just yet. It will be on there from December. The accommodation and stuff is on there already? The tourism information is That's all, all there. there. Yeah. So if they're wanting to come up and find out what's up there, have a look at biggameparks.org. It's all there. But all the information about the big day is coming. Yes. Sort of a secret that's all waiting. Creating suspense. Yeah. <laughs> But it's, it sounds like, you know, people haven't been up to Swaziland. I'm a big one on the show for promoting being a tourist locally in your own yeah. town, in your own country and on the continent. And that is, I mean, you can almost make Swaziland part of South Africa. It pretty much is, yeah. you know, it's its own place. But, you know, it's within our, our sort of part of the world. So before I always say going overseas is fabulous, but explore closer to home. You'd be surprised what you'd find. You know, the innocence of Africa is mm. very alive in Swaziland and, it's so many people sort of say, gee, you know, cross the border and you can feel the difference. And they, don't, they can't really put a finger on it, but it's chill, it's laid back. It has a very safe feel and it is pretty much safe. You know, you never want to say for sure. But um, for me, Swaziland is very real, very real African. And that talks to humility and it talks to authenticity and respect, I think. I think a lot of that is lost, and it's it's very personable. Sounds like the place for your next holiday, then definitely your next July. Make a plan. It's school holidays. You can go up with the family. It sounds like a wonderful family destination. And thank you very much indeed for joining me on the show this evening. It's a big pleasure. Thank you. I was chatting there with Anne Riley, and she's the project manager of celebrating 50 years of conservation at the big game parks in Swaziland. As you mentioned, their big day is coming up on the 12th of July, 2014. And for more information on the parks, take a look at www.biggameparks.org. Time to travel with Car and Key. 
Well, as I'm sure you're all aware, smartphones and tablets have changed the way we live our lives, but getting connected to them when traveling often involves a range of different solutions that often aren't desirable or efficient. Now, this is why Exec Mobile has developed its pocket Wi-Fi solution, which allows people to carry the internet with them to 128 countries globally. Craig Lowe is the founder of Exec Mobile, and he joins me now. Craig, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hi, good evening, Karen. I have to start this conversation, Craig, by just telling you up front that I'm seriously technologically challenged. So you'll forgive me if half the time I don't quite know what you're talking about. No, no, no. it's meant to be easy. Meant to be very easy. Hopefully I'll know all about this at the end of our chat. Yeah, no, indeed, indeed. It fascinates me that you can now carry the internet with you in your pocket. Well, I I think your your point of departure is a great point to start. I think, um, you know, everybody just thinks, well, you, you know, you get the internet overseas by... I suppose the local the options to date have been using Wi-Fi somewhere or buying local SIM cards. But I think only three percent of people of travellers buy local SIM cards for the exact same reason. It's it's you know it's technologically um, you, you need you need to know something. You know you're, you're either at Heathrow nowadays and there's a vending machine next to the ice cream machine looks exactly the same full of SIM cards. And if you don't know you know you wouldn't even know which one to choose. So I'm not surprised many people aren't actually using that option. It's um it's quite tough. So I suppose the next favourite thing that people go for is Wi-Fi because it's becoming a bit more ubiquitous everywhere you go. You you seeing a bit more Wi-Fi. So I think that's exactly why that's what we try to try try to say to people. You know, you you it's a familiar method of connectivity. So why shouldn't you have it as an option when you travel overseas? Now, I mean, I've been hearing over the last year or so some absolutely horrendous stories about people coming back from holiday or a business trip and they get their bill at the end of the month and there is some ridiculous sort of thousands and thousands of rands in data charges. Now, that is what you are saying that with this pocket Wi-Fi thing, we can possibly eliminate the, what you call bull shock. Yeah, and I think our top customers spend 760,000 rand in 11 days in the US. We've got... Uh, oh, my goodness. <laughs> One person. Yeah, uh, well, three, uh, two weeks ago, we had three bankers who went over and spent 650k in Australia. And not realizing they were doing it? No, well, that's the problem. Unfortunately, uh, the disconnect between what local data costs and what international roaming data costs is simply enormous. I mean, that's enough to give you a nervous breakdown when you came back and found a bill at that, at, of that amount. Yeah, no budget planning, no nothing's going to be able to... to wow. That. Yeah, okay. And, and it's, you know, it's all very well when it happens to a corporate customer, mm. but it's as likely to happen to an individual. So how do we stop this from happening, Craig? What is the, well, Explain how the pocket what, Wi-Fi works now. No, I suppose, mm. you do what 68% of people do, you turn off. Well, yes, that's what I would do. Yeah, that's, that, that really is the trend. You... You know, and even business travellers, I think 38% of business travellers turn off. So companies spend fortunes sending their employees overseas and then get them to either go and hunt around for some free Wi-Fi in coffee shops or just turn off. I think that's been the biggest fear. That's exactly why it's, it, you know, fear of bull shock is, is such a phenomenon. Right, so here you come along now and you're going to save us all. <laughs> I, I can't say, you know, yeah, I'd like to think that what we offer is convenience. Um, and it is targeted at business travellers who tend to have less time or in countries, you know, multiple countries for short durations because, let's face it, there is no cheap alternative to buying a local SIM card. Um, that, that will remain the cheapest way to do it. But then again, you, you lose your identity, you lose the ability for people to phone you, you've lost your number, you have to reset up your WhatsApp to the new phone's number. You know, there's a whole lot of problems that come with changing your SIM card, even though that, that might be the cheapest method. So what does this pocket Wi-Fi actually do, and how does it work? All right, so uh, instead of having to change a SIM card for every single country that you go to, uh, first and foremost, our SIM works in, we have two solutions. One works in 74 countries, one works in 110 countries. Uh, and the idea there is, again, you don't want to give people the form factor of a SIM because most people travel with multiple devices. So you've got a phone or a tablet, or you've got a PC, or there's a group of people traveling. So the pocket Wi-Fi... Um, and thankfully it's even taking off here locally in South Africa. There's a local internet company that's just sold 8,000 of these little devices. Effectively, they just create your own personal secure Wi-Fi hotspot. So it's, it's, it's no different to a mobile phone um, or creating a little hotspot on your phone, except that this little device is capable of connecting five devices to it. And, um, yeah, it's just meant to be really simple and convenient. Most people know how to connect to a Wi-Fi network, but the great... Obviously, the big advantage uh, between this and public Wi-Fi is that it's a secure connection. You know 
where your internet's coming from, and you can connect securely to your device. So you'd basically switch off your international roaming or your roaming thing, and you would just use the Wi-Fi when you got there? Correct, correct. Oh, gosh, so I even understood that. That's the very first, most important thing to do. Uh, phones like Apple's, like, uh, they, they, they iPhone internet phone, so that is, you know, they, they set to go and seek out Wi-Fi before, before using the mobile connections, whereas other phones will go to the mobile connections first. So absolutely essential. There's normally a setting on most tablets, phones, um, there's two settings. Normally one says uh, cellular data, the other one says data when roaming. You leave cellular data on because that only refers to your data in South Africa, but you make 100% sure you turn data when roaming off. Right, so as long as we do that first, we can actually stop ourselves from getting these horrendous bills and we can then operate this device, whichever device we have, the tablet or the phone or whatever, wherever we can access a hotspot. Well, this, is this, do we have to find a, a Wi-Fi hotspot somewhere or is this thing just our walkabout yeah. as a hotspot with us wherever we go? Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. You're taking your own Wi-Fi hotspot in oh, your right. pocket. So that's where the pocket Wi-Fi naming came from. And the idea was that it's meant to be really simple, that the, the battery life's about the same as this mobile phone. So... Most people charge their phones, I guess, most evenings. Uh, you do the same with this little device, and then it just fits in your backpack or your suit or your briefcase. And so long as you're within 11 meters of it, um, you've got your own Wi-Fi connectivity. So you connect all your devices to it. You do it once, and uh, those devices remember the connect connection. And whenever they go to seek data, they will get it from your own Wi-Fi connection. Well, you see, even I understand all this now, so it's not that complicated. <laughs> As I said, that's oh, well, I'm quite impressed with my own self now. No, 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 no. <laughs> that's, that's the whole point. It's meant to be, and, you know, busy execs or just most most people, they don't want the hassle. That's the last thing they want to do. They want to yeah. get off a plane, okay, they sort of turn the device on. Uh, once it's connected to our partner networks, they've got the connection, and then they can just, you know, in the taxi back to the hotel or, you know, immediately you've got access to the Internet and you can share and do things because, Let's face it, people use the services mm. like Google Maps and Facebook more than ever when they're traveling. So, so there's even more need than ever to be connected. Now, where do people get hold of one of these things, Craig? Um, we do sell them. We, 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 so we've got two main channels, obviously, to, to individuals and to SMEs who maybe want one, and people who want to manage their own account can just go to our web store, uh, www.execmobile, it's E-X-E-C for executive, execmobile.coza, and you can just purchase your pocket Wi-Fi on on our store, and we send it to you, and then you just set up your account. You either load credit onto it, or you can load data bundles, and I think the data bundles reduce the roaming costs down to around three rand a meg, which is not bad when you consider that the mobile networks are charging about 128 rand a meg. Right. Well, got, as I said, I'm quite impressed with myself now, because even I understand all of this. It sounds like an absolute gift for those people who are traveling, probably listening, thinking to themselves, gosh, I could have actually reduced my bill a whole lot more if I'd known about this earlier. But now the next time you guys go traveling, please go and have a look at this execmobile.coza website and get yourself one of these pocket Wi-Fi things. It'll make your life a whole lot easier and a whole lot cheaper when you're traveling. Craig, thank you so much for your time, and thank you for telling us all about this exciting new development in uh, mobile traveling. No, thanks for that. And I just hope I can maybe stop more people being stung. Well, yes, that bull shock thing is quite quite horrendous. Thanks, Corey. <laughs> Thanks for your time. Good night. Night. Night, night. Craig Lowe is the founder of Exec Mobile, and we were talking there about their new pocket Wi-Fi. And if you want more information, or if you'd like to buy one, you can have a look at the website. It's www.execmobile.co.za. Time to travel with Karen Key. Well, we were going to cross now to Natalie Jamanis for an update on the third ODI between South Africa and Pakistan in Abu Dhabi. But great news, the Proteas won by 68 runs. So that's really, really exciting news. So we won't be chatting to Natalie because it's all done and dusted quite a while ago. But right, now we're going to be talking about my dream job. Well, it's not mine, but the person who actually has this dream job is Solms Delta winemaker Hagen Fulyun. And he recently undertook a visit to France and Italy just to go and take a look at their wine producing areas. Hagen, good evening. Welcome to the show. I'm turning green with envy here. Hi, Karen. How are you? <laughs> well, not so fine if I have to listen to what you did when you went overseas. Yeah, it's a tough job, but someone's got to do it. Yeah, I'm not okay. even going to feel sorry for you or anything. Now, you, the winemaker at Psalms Delta, what, for about the last 12 months, you're relatively new there? Yeah, that's right. Basically, 1st of November last year, so just on a year. And um, at one of your wine-tasting blending times, somebody sort of suggested that maybe you should pop over there and have a look. Yeah, to my benefit, um, 
we obviously do a dedicated style wine that <coughs> films Delta, um, which is quite a unique technique. And uh, the closest thing to that is the Amarone wines in um, Italy and the Verona region. So that was kind of the focus of the of the trip to go over that side and just to taste the wines and um, talk to the winemakers there and hear what they, from their technical aspects, what they do. So you spent 15 days in France and Italy, obviously moving between the two countries. Let's start off in France. Where exactly did you go? I think you went to Avignon to start off with. Yeah, we started off down in the south in Avignon. Um, we flew into Marseille and then uh, drove up to Avignon, basically focusing on the on the Rhone region of France, which is um, starts down in Avignon, which is the Chateau Neuf area, the closest town to that that's quite well known for their wines. Um, we did a few tastings in the area. Another prominent region is the Gigondas area, which is probably about a half an half an hour's drive um, east northeast from from Chateau Neuf. And uh, then we made our way up to to Hermitage, Hotel um, Hermitage, which is uh, just up the basically up the Rhone Valley on the Rhone River. Um, fantastic place, beautiful beautiful views. It's quite a stunning um, town, right on the hill very steep slopes and um, quite a dramatic setting. How different is the setting of their wine estates to what we used to here in South Africa? I think the main thing is, um, in general, just the fact that um, our mountains here are quite rugged in the in the Cape, so we can't really um, grow vines too, on too steep a slope. So for them, the hills are, are quite steep, but they're not quite as rugged as our mountains still have. A lot of the vineyards actually on those steep slopes, so it's quite dramatic in that in that sense. Having having um, conditions that are literally you can't get any tractors or anything in there. You have to have to handle the vines um, manually. People go up there with with little baskets on their back to pick vines uh, or pick the grapes, which is which is quite extreme, but also um, a sight for amazing wines. The thing about the wines estates here in South Africa over the last number of years is they've become very accessible to the general public. So people can come along, they can watch, possibly they have harvest time, you can come and see the harvest, you can, yeah, go, you can experience, do they do that sort of thing there as well? They're actually starting to, I think, um, just with the commercial pressures nowadays on the international market, where it's so competitive, people actually need to um, just go that extra step and make open up their doors to, to tourists, to people that are passionate about wines, um, just to invite them in and actually show them what they're doing. So definitely there is a is a quite a big trend to to actually find similar similar setups um, in those areas. But obviously it depends where you go. Some of the really small estates um, they're just not geared for, for tourists so they will only be open for appointments and that. So we're sort of ahead of the game here. Yeah, in a sense, I think so. We're definitely very um, tourist-friendly. I think language-wise as well. It's, um, one of the big barriers there was was language. Um, not all the places are set up to speak English or English-friendly, so um, that was quite a challenge. But luckily, I had a had a guide in France, another consultant winemaker, who, who escorted us to quite a few of the places. Had you been there before, Hagen, to France? Um, Yep, we, my wife and I have worked together in um, Saint-Emilion, which is basically the border, border region of France. Um, but this is the first time, first time to uh, the Rhone Valley. And I have to ask you, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping you're going to say what I hope you're going to say, but I'm probably not. Wine-wise, how like ours is their wine, and is our wine better? <laughs> the answer here, million, of course, is yes. Question. The answer um, is yes, of course, our wine is better. Well, I think I'd have to say... <laughs> <laughs> That's, it's, it's, it's not as decisive as that we do have um, very good wines and I think in general we've got a fantastic quality of wine available um, their top wines it, it all depends some people will prefer that and others prefer this style so it's very much a stylistic thing um, a lot of the winemakers it's always kind of a reference point for us to strive to a lot of the top top Rhone wines for for the Shiraz varietals um I don't think it's really something that we, we strive to copy, but it is definitely a source of a lot of inspiration for us. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question. But, yeah. <laughs> no, I just get very precious when it comes to anything South African. You know, I yeah. always think ours is always better. Anything yeah. in South Africa is better. We don't have to stand back. I mean, we've no. got fantastic wines. Now, you, you thought that France was going to be the most exciting place you visited, but you were very taken with Italy. Yeah, Italy was just magic. I mean, um, the people were so inviting. 
it was really, I don't know, it's just, I think that maybe it's more family orientated, just the, the inclusiveness of the people was, um, was really, it just, you just feel welcome and they make, make, it made a lot of effort with us. Uh, my wife and I traveled together and uh, they were just very much more open with their knowledge and, and their time. With the French, I think it, we were a bit more on harvest time in France, so it was a tricky, tricky time for us. The people were quite busy. Um, but the landscape and the wines and the culture in Italy was just amazing. And the Italian wines, very different to what we make here in South Africa? Yeah, definitely. They're using a lot of different cultivars specifically. So um, the area we were focusing on in Verona with the Amarone wines is very, very big, heavy, alcohol, alcoholic wines, but they still have a freshness and a vibrancy, which is um, quite quite amazing to see. And, uh, yeah, quite insightful for me because obviously the style we're going for is something something similar to that, but um, just that freshness and the, actually the... Yeah, probably the vibrancy of the wines is something that um, I can definitely see as fine-tuning of it. Now, the thing I think that interested you most in Italy was what they call the desiccation methods in the yeah, winemaking. Right. Could you just explain what that is? And I believe that your, this harvest now is going to be your first attempt at desiccation. Yeah, 2013 was, was the first uh, vintage for desiccation for me. Um, it's basically just a, it's a dehydration of the grapes or so drying out. So we just pinch the stem of the bunches on the vines, um, and then we just let them hang or dehydrate for, for a week or two just to concentrate the berry, um, just to lose a bit of moisture, which just intensifies everything, basically. And the sort of terrain where they grow their vines initially, similar to what you saw in France, very hilly terrain? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, there were a few, obviously there's a lot of variation, but most of the, the better producers are um, in Verona, the, the town or the cities are on a, on a river, so it's a lower area, but the better producers as you go up in the valley, up into the more hilly, mountainous areas, then um, that's where the, the good stuff comes from. Now, you went over there, I'm assuming, with a purpose to go and learn something from yep. what they do over there. So what did you actually bring back with you, knowledge-wise? Uh, I was about to say a few kgs, but... Uh, <laughs> well, maybe you can't help that um, being there. It was, more, it was quite a conceptual visit. It's, uh, it was interesting because a lot of the aspects that I thought um, I could maybe gain insight from there is not, not necessarily applicable to what we're doing. It's, um, although it's a similar style of wine, their winemaking and their, their techniques are quite different with, a, with a dehydration or desiccation. Um, they do a much longer process, or what they call a passimento, which is like a three or four month um, process where you have quite an evolution of the grape itself where we are more, in effect, have a dehydration. So the, the parameters are a bit different. Um, but a lot of food for thought, more just tasting the wines and styles, and it gives you a bit of a, a concept for yourself to, to work on, on your philosophy, or, or my philosophy, rather, on winemaking. So I mentioned you've been winemaker at Salms Delta now for about 12 months. Yeah. What can we look forward to from you, Hagen? Ooh, I'm basically, I'm actually, interestingly enough, I'm busy brewing my first, batch or, or vinifying my first batch of honey wine, which we call curry, mm. um, which will probably be released in the next three months or so. And then I'll also be bottling um, my first release 2013 in January, the Amelie, our white blend, um, and at the same time also our uh, rosé, the lacquer vein. So those will be the first uh, official launches that are basically under my um, winemaking. So lots of interesting things coming from you. Yeah, we'll see. Hopefully, hopefully good things. <laughs> and you mentioned this curry wine. It's, it's not curry like if people are listening. It's not curry that you eat, C-U-R-R-Y. It's spelled K-A-R-R-Y. K-A-R-R-I. And it's unique. I mean, it's, it's, it's your, it was launched, I think, by your predecessor. That's right, yes. They, um, they're, they're one or two guys actually doing, starting to do um, meats now. Or that's obviously mm. the more general term as a honey wine. Um, but it is definitely, it's, it's quite an ancient uh, technique. It's probably one of the first fermented beverages. Um, but in South Africa, definitely be on the forefront of that.
but it was my first batch, so we'll see. <laughs> I think people think of mead, they think of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, you know, that kind yeah, of, it's ba- that's when they were drinking things called mead, and this is basically yeah. the same thing. Well, the, or Robin Hood. Robin Hood, yes. Fryer Tuck, yes. I mean, amazing. I mean, that, that this is all sort of coming back into vogue now, so long after yeah. it, it first sort of came about. But yeah. sounds like there's lots of exciting things for you to do out there at Psalms Delta, and I'm sure people wanted to pop out there, I'll give out the website address, they can go and have a look at the website, and um, pop out and see what you're doing out on the farm yeah and our doors are always open it's a a really nice um, spot to visit there's a lot happening and as you say and we've got a new uh, museum opening up as well a cultural or musical museum probably in december and uh, yeah come and come and check it out come and have a visit there you holiday time coming up lots to do there's something you can go and do on your holidays hagen thank you so much for joining me on the show this evening my pleasure corin Good night. Psalms Delta winemaker Hagen Fulyun, who recently spent some time exploring the wine producing areas in France and Italy. For more information, you can take a look at the website. It's www.psalmsdelta.co.za and that's S-O-L-M-S hyphen Delta, D-E-L-T-A, psalms hyphen Delta dot C-O dot Z-A. Time to travel with Karen Key. Well, currently in Cape Town is uh, Deputy Mayor Alderman Gary Middleton of the Derry City Council, and he's here because the yacht, the Derry London Derry Dura, is currently in Cape Town, and um, they are taking part in the Clipper 2013-14 Round the World Yacht Race. I'll be speaking to their skipper in a moment, but first of all, let me speak to the Alderman. Um, Gary, welcome to Cape Town. It's your first visit, I believe. It is indeed, and certainly it won't be my last. Uh, we've had a ball since we've arrived here. We've been busy, uh, but it's been great, and thankfully the weather has now turned the corner as well, so we may enjoy some sunshine before we go home. But I'll certainly be back, uh, and I will be encouraging others to do so as well. Now, it's been a big year for Derry. You're the first UK city of culture where you were for 2013, but it's been an amazing transformation of the city, and it's not going to end at the end of the year. This is going to continue. Tell us what's happening in Derry in 2013 as the UK city of culture. Well, absolutely. We were awarded the UK City of Culture uh, a few years back uh, for 2013. So this is the year, this is the first ever uh, City of Culture in the UK. Uh, And indeed, it's been a huge success for us. Uh, We've had so many events uh, happen over the year. To name a few, we're actually currently hosting the Turner Prize, which is a major uh, art exhibition. Uh, We've had concerts, festivals, uh, all sorts of displays. And indeed, what we're looking to do is build on that for the legacy for the years to come and I suppose the fact that we've Clipper here uh, in Cape Town today is quite significant because we plan to host uh, Clipper again in June 2014 and that will be part of our legacy uh, of our year as City of Culture as well so that's, that's the kind of work that we're doing at the moment. The tagline seems to be be part of our new story what is the new story? The new story is for many people who have been to Northern Ireland or Ireland before uh, it was a divided city it was a city certainly that had its troubles as well But now, with the new uh, infrastructure in place, with the the Peace Bridge, uh, it's a community that's now united. Uh, It's a community that's come together. Uh, And, you know, yes, there are different cultures in the city, but those cultures are now being celebrated uh, in a way that's respectful uh, and and tolerant of one another. Uh, So we're certainly, that's the the story that these guys that are out in the clipper boats are promoting as well, is the fact that this is a new story and you have to actually come there uh, to witness that. So we would encourage everybody to to do come along, particularly June 2014 next year to see the great boats, but come any time and certainly we'll uh, give you a taster of what our city's like. Ireland has always been a place a lot of South Africans aspire to visit and a lot of them have already visited but it's got so much there's it's the most beautiful part of the world it's absolutely divine to to look at so there's that but there's so much culturally to see as well I mean one of the things I think you're the oldest walled city in the world tell us a little bit about what the tourists can expect when they come to your part of the world well, absolutely. And last week, I suppose as part of our UK City of Culture celebrations, last week I hosted uh, the European Walled Towns Symposium. So there's people there, delegates from all over Europe, from other walled towns, uh, came to our city uh, to see the walls themselves, because they're, they're actually they're only the full they're the only full set of walls that are in Europe. Uh, so that's quite an achievement uh, and indeed that's one of the reasons why people come is for the history of it but also it's the, it's the culture that people come to see it's the music there's just at every street corner there's musicians there's uh, a buzz about the place is what the way we would say it and i do there's so much else to do uh, we're very close to the the north coast uh, the giants causeway as well um, and we, we have plenty of great museums 
uh, indeed the, the festivals that we run throughout the year as well. Last night uh, in the city, the Halloween festival was taking part, one of the biggest in Ireland and indeed one of the biggest in the world. Uh, over 40,000 people took to the streets last night to celebrate uh, Halloween. There was a major carnival and fireworks. Uh, so indeed, any time of the year when you come, there certainly will be something to do in Derry London Day. Just before I spoke with you, we were hearing about some fabulous new developments as far as tourists are concerned. There's this, the, the capping of the tourism VAT at 9%. There's also been the abolition of the tourist tax as well. I mean, gosh, it's, it's definitely the place to go for tourists. Absolutely, and I suppose it just proves that as a country we are serious about getting tourists here and indeed the work that Tourism Ireland do is very, very key uh, for us and they're out here, they're promoting the city and indeed whilst they're doing that, they're also promoting uh, South Africa, they're promoting Cape Town as well because we've been encouraged uh, by the work that's going on out here. So indeed, um, it is valuable, uh, the work now that the government is doing to try and encourage people to come. And indeed, that means making, um, you know, cutting the likes of the airport tax and indeed making uh, the rates and, and um, hospitality as, as best as we can. Yeah. As far as people coming over there accommodation-wise, you've had an increase in that over this past year and, and, and your figures are looking pretty good. And as you said earlier, you don't really want this to stop just because your 2013 year is over. This has got to be almost the start of where you're going in the future. Absolutely, this is indeed only the start. Um, our, the figures for some of the hotels, I think there's an 80% increase this year than, than any other year, which is absolutely huge and people can't believe it. But indeed, it is very, very important for us that the momentum that we've gained over this past year is not lost. Uh, it would be disastrous if it was lost. What we're trying to do is build upon that. Uh, we have a legacy plan in place um, and indeed that has the backing of the, the whole hospitality, tourism sector as well. So we're going to work forward on that. Uh, so as I say, we just need people now to come and enjoy our city and uh, best time of the year to come and if so, you had to give somebody a highlight unfortunately when we do come over on holiday we normally have a very short time I spoke to somebody recently who spent two weeks in Ireland and she said way wasn't enough she's got to come back there's just so much to see there so if, if you have to pick out some of the top spots that you would recommend and best time of year well culturally I suppose if you wanted to come to Derry London Derry and experience culture at its highest point you would come between June, July and August. 2016 we have the flag Huel back uh, in the city uh, and then you would have the, the 12th celebrations as well. So there's all different cultures coming together um, and certainly it's quite a spectacle if you come along at that time of year. Indeed if you're looking to come later in the year you can come at Halloween time which is also very very worth seeing and of course next June there's a 10 day festival for the Clipper as well so it'll be worth coming then. So it sounds like it's more than one trip then. We can't just go once. We're going to have to keep going back and back and back. It sounds like definitely the thing to do. Absolutely. No, once isn't enough. I suppose it's the same for here in Cape Town. Once isn't enough. I certainly will be back. I'm looking forward to spending some time and taking in all of the tourist attractions here as well. So sometimes, no, one time, one time isn't enough. You always go once uh, and don't get to do everything and then come back again and, and try and uh, get to see everything then. If you wanted to find out more about Derry, London Derry, I actually need to ask Gary about that in a moment. But if you wanted to find out more about that, it's www.derrycity.gov.uk. Gary, before we go, <clears throat> Derry, London Derry, Dara, why do you have three names? Well, we've three, we've three names because it's that great. Uh, people say they like to name it three times. Uh, the name of the boat indeed is Derry, London Derry, Dara. Uh, the official, I suppose, council line on... on the way the city is named is Derry London Derry. So all of our literature uh, that goes out would have Derry London Derry on it. Uh because it represents everybody in the city and everybody is content and happy with that and that's that's what's important. It's about, I suppose people see there's more important things to be getting on with than worrying about you know any particular name. So Derry Londonderry works for us and indeed on the boat we have Derry Londonderry Dura which also works as well. So um, no, people are happy with that and uh, I suppose it's good for us to be able to promote that name as well. Yeah. Well, sounds like three times the fun. You definitely have to go and have a look at Derry, London Derry, and as we said, the boat has the added Dura at the end of it. I'm chatting now with the Clipper Skipper. The Clipper is the Derry, London Derry Dura, and his name is Sean McCarter. And have been travelling all over the world for a while and uh, not likely to be back in Ireland until the middle of next year. Sean, welcome to the show. Tell me a little bit about your involvement on this Clipper. Thanks very much. Um, my involvement in Clipper started... Uh, probably for the last race actually four years ago I wasn't able to join that race because I was finishing another trip uh, the World Arc which actually stopped in Cape Town last year so this is, this is my second time here and, uh, and it definitely won't be my last either um, so the, the timing didn't work out for the previous race 
but I, I, I reapplied and, and got the job for, for this race. So tell me where you started, and it's been a while. It's now in November, 1st of November, where I'm chatting with you, but you're not likely to get back to Ireland until the middle of next year. Where have you been and where are you still going? We started in early September in St. Catherine's Dock in London, so right up in the heart of London. And our first stop it was a short race to Brest in France. We then did uh, a longer race, it took us four weeks to race uh, down the Atlantic, across the doldrums and over into Rio in Brazil. And, and then from there it was about two weeks to, to cross the South Atlantic to Cape Town. Uh, it'll take us another, we leave on Monday, and it'll take another probably a little bit over three weeks to race to the west coast of Australia. And we go from there up the up to uh, as far as China, across the North Pacific to San Francisco, down and through the Panama Canal up to New York, and then we'll be back in uh, Derry, Londonderry in June, the middle of June uh, next year, and then we go a quick pit stop in Dan Helder in Holland, and then down to London to finish next July. Now you're a dairy boy yourself, so it must be quite a sense of pride sailing the, the dairy, London dairy. Yeah, it is indeed. It's it's quite unique, and it's yeah, it's an, an amazing opportunity that I never expected to arise. Derry, London Derry doesn't have a, a huge uh, history in sailing. In fact, the last race would have been their first time sponsoring a boat in such an event, and uh, I thought I'd missed my chance on that one, but was delighted to hear that they'd sp- uh, sponsored again. The last skipper was an Englishman, and uh, and he did a great job. But it, yeah, it's a huge sense of pride to be able to sail for your home team, and it's it's so uncommon in this sport. You know, a lot of the uh, a lot of sponsored sailing teams are sponsored by brands and companies, and very few are, are national teams anymore. So yeah, it's a huge huge uh, sense of pride for me to be able to promote my hometown, uh, where I grew up, uh, went to school. To be able to promote that around the world is a huge honour. So tell me a little bit about the crew and about the race itself. There are 12 boats taking part? That's right, yeah, they built 12 identical Clipper 70s. Um, this is the first time they've been uh, racing. Uh, some of them, they, we just finished launching the last few and commissioning them uh, in sort of last summer, July, in, in Gosport, on the south coast of England. And the racing has been amazingly close I mean we when we arrived in Cape Town after two weeks racing the first seven boats arrived in within five hours of each other so you think back over two weeks you think of the moments when oh if we had just changed that sail a little bit faster or if we had a you know so it's it's a really amazing race and really great boats they're they're, they're a lot quicker than the older models the Clipper 68s so uh, it's, yeah, it's nice we get to destinations like Cape Town that bit quicker and get to enjoy them that little bit more. And the crew, how many of you are there? And uh, have you all, any of you sailed together before? No, the crew apply en masse to Clipper. And Clipper then do the training and evaluate them throughout their training and, and uh, eventually divide all the crew up between the 12 boats. And there's certain criteria, uh, you know, each boat will get a medic. So if there's a doctor or a surgeon or a, I've got a paramedic on board, they try and divide those out equally. They'll try and divide the, the sailors out equally. So the people with qualifications and with experience will get divided out equally. They have to have a male-female balance and all the rest. But really, it, it's quite a lottery um, who you get. And at crew allocation in May, uh, we were the crews were announced. And then you become the team as such. So it was a little bit of a nervous moment because you never know who you, you get. But uh, on Derry London Day, Dora, we've been extremely lucky. We've got a, a bunch of 10 round-the-worlders who'll do the whole trip. And all, all really great. It feels like we've known each other forever. But uh, in reality, we only met in May. And we've got our total crew number is 54. So at each port, we'll have four or five people leave and four or five new laggers, as we call them, join. So, but yeah, it's a, it's a great bunch of people with an amazing range of skill sets. And yeah, it's an honor to sail with them. So this sounds almost like anybody in anywhere in the world who wants to do this could apply to do this. It's not sort of limited to specific countries or specific types of people. If you have a qualification that they feel might be useful on the race, you could very possibly be chosen. 
Uh, very much. Uh, even I would say even without qualifications, the, the one of Clippers' mottos is no experience required. So 40% of the crew here, or uh, in general, will have never set foot on a boat before. Um, the people who, you know, for diff people join for all different reasons. They may have retired and want want to travel. Uh, they may just want to take a year out of their job, for yeah, a whole number of reasons. And it's yeah, it's it's excellent what Clipper do. Uh, Sir Robin Knox Johnson, he was the first man to sail around the world single-handed uh, back in 1969. He it was his plan to get ordinary people. To, to let them experience ocean sailing in, in all its uh, beauty and he's, he's done a fantastic job of introducing people who never would have got the chance or might never have known how to, to get this opportunity and now it's, it's as easy as signing up and you pay if you decide you want to do one leg you pay for one leg if you decide to do the whole thing and they train you up so uh, you'll have done three levels of training by the time you start the race and be fully capable in, in all areas of boat handling. So it's, a, it's, it's an unbelievable uh, package that, that Clipper provide. It's certainly a different way to see the world. And I'm assuming as the skipper, you're not just in the, in the lottery. You are selected specifically for the boat. That's right. Yeah, the 12 skippers were selected out of a pool of applicants. And um, you go through various interviews and, and eventually a three-day sailing trial. So, um, yeah, it's quite a tough and stressful process where they, they really push push the limits and see how you, how you cope with the stress so yeah it was it's definitely uh it's definitely an honor to be chosen as skipper and it's it's certainly not the easiest job in the world but definitely one of the most rewarding well it certainly are promoting your city very well all over the world and is this something that you would do again a few people have asked me that and it's funny because Derry London Derry are sponsoring a boat in the next race and uh, I know the old skipper, who's now our race director, is keen for that position. You know, he'd like to take up the reins of the dairy boat again. Uh, but I think it's too early to tell. You know, we've still got a long way to go. And I know, having done one of these trips before, uh, they, afterwards all you want to do is have a nine-to-five job where you, where you unpack your bag and live in your own house, sleep in a bed that doesn't move, wear dry clothes. <laughs> so it's way too early to say, but who knows? Well, it sounds like you're having a lot of fun seeing the world as well. And as I said earlier, welcome to Cape Town. I know it's not your first time, but hopefully we'll see you back here again, possibly for the next race. Thank you very much. It, it'd definitely be one of the reasons to uh, do the next race and another excuse to come back to Cape Town. Sean McCarter is the skipper of the Derry London Derry Dura, which is currently competing in the Clipper 2013-14 Round the World Yacht Race. You can find out more by visiting www.derrycity.gov.uk forward slash clipper. And before that, I was talking with Deputy Mayor Alderman Gary Middleton of Derry City Council. For more information on the city of Derry in Ireland, take a look at www.derrycity.gov.uk. And that's it for Time to Travel for this week. But before I go, let me tell you that coming up on Monday, when is when I'll be back with you, Monday the 11th of November for The Law Report, it's our monthly well, law clinic. And this month we'll be joined by Attorney Mzor Chaka, so join me for that. And then on Tuesday next week, it's our monthly health matters phone in and as I mentioned last night I think we're going to be focusing on the men this month because it's Movember so next Tuesday the 12th of November it's a phone in on men's health and I'll be joined in studio by Dr. Vickers Vermeulen and he's a urologist practicing in Wittbank so join me for that but I'm Karen Key as you probably know by now thanks for joining me this evening and I'll be back with you as I said on Monday evening for the law report